If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Wins and Losses with Clay Travis. Play talks with the most entertaining people in sports, entertainment, and business. Now, here's Clay Travis. Welcome in Wins and Losses podcast. I am Clay Travis. The goal here is to have as many different, interesting, intelligent conversations from a wide variety of sports, media, politics, business. And this guy certainly touches on the world of sports, media, and business. Love having him on the radio show. He's been on a few times. You guys might know him. He's Rich Greenfield. He's just started a brand new venture. He's a partner at Lightshed. Calls himself, and this is an interesting phrase, a media futurist, um, formerly a BTIG, Goldman Sachs. Uh, he is at Rich Lightshed. I'll tweet it out, obviously. You should go follow him. He's got all sorts of interesting things for you to read out there. First of all, Rich, thanks for coming on. And sort of as a broad question to start here, how in the world did you end up doing what you do? You know, I, I came out of college, I guess, 23 years ago. I feel old. But um, I was fascinated by media. I actually ran a college radio station, was fascinated by the business of media, and ended up in media at Goldman Sachs and just never left uh, the sector of covering media companies. Uh, you know, so I started in 1995, and uh, at that point, I think that was the year that literally, I think, six weeks into my job, Disney bought ABC. Uh, later that year, Time Warner bought Turner, and obviously, the world has changed a lot since then. But it, but it's fascinating to look at how much has, how the industry has evolved, and I think I've just I've always had a fascination in, in how businesses change, and I, I think there's no business going through more change right now than the world of media that that you and many of your peers live in, Clay. Yeah, so I'm fascinated by this, and we're going to unpack all of that that he just said. But I want to go back for a sec. You go to college where? Brandeis up in Boston. Okay, so you go to Brandeis, you're 22 years old, you go to work at Goldman Sachs. What is your job like when you are 22 years old going to work at an investment bank? You would arrive at what time, you would do what? This is 1995. What's your day-to-day existence like for those first several years? You know, it it was um, a little bit of everything. Uh, You know, in many ways it was 
uh, Goldman was pre-IPO. They were a much smaller company. Um, I worked directly for uh, my boss who had been doing it for decades. And it was really being thrown into the fire. The person I replaced literally left two days after I started. And so it was really having your feet to the fire. And you basically did everything from, I mean, what was funny back then is that when companies reported earnings, it was rushing to the fax machine um, and rushing to call them to talk to them because there was, I mean, this was in many, for a lot of companies, it was pre-conference calls and things were faxed. So business very different than where we are now in the internet. You know, I think the first year I was there, Netscape went public. And so, you know, from a standpoint of researching, researching was very different in 1995 than it is today in terms of how you get information. We live in obviously a world of click a button and anything, anywhere. But back then, uh, it was a very different time. And you actually, you know, the, the investigative part of it was in many ways even more challenging because there was no easy source of information the way there is today in terms of finding out. And, you know, there was no Google to go search for a story the way there was, uh, the way there is today. How did you come up with the estimates for earnings for companies back then? Is it art? Is it science? And how much of it is art and science now when you're trying to forecast these multi-billion dollar companies and let's use disney for example you got all the different media businesses that they're in you've got theme parks you've got the now direct to consumer offering disney plus which we're going to get to but these are just goliath leviathan companies how in the world do you try to make sense of all the things that are going on in some ways it's it's really gotten a lot more challenging because these companies have gotten so much bigger i mean when you think about again Disney, you know, before ABC was primarily a studio and theme park company. You know, they didn't have ABC and ESPN. Uh, These were much, much smaller companies. I mean, you know, obviously this was Disney pre-Pixar, pre-Marvel, pre-Lucas, pre-Fox. So the complexity of these companies, and you could look at the same thing like a Warner Media, which is now part of AT&T, but, you know, it used to be Time Warner before it even had Turner. There was no cable networks other than just HBO. Uh, these companies have transformed themselves, and I think in many ways they've had to scale up because of the changing consumer landscape. And, you know, what when I first started in 1995, the only thing that really unified the media universe is that each of these companies had a studio. And over time, each of these companies had lots of cable networks. But the reality is, in today's world, there's a whole new skill set of, of expertise needed in terms of data and analytics and understanding who your audience is and being across all platforms. I mean, you were talking on a podcast. I mean, talk about one of the fastest growing parts of media that wasn't even something people were talking about five years ago. And so these companies have had to scale up to find new ways to to grow. And they're facing new competitors for time. You know, there's so many things a consumer can do now versus just turn on the television or go to a movie theater. And so these companies are looking to diversify their businesses and it's making forecasting them far more challenging than it's ever been. And, you know, I I always say that, you know, analyzing companies is is part art and part science. I don't think you could ever get down to a scientific level because there just isn't the level of detail there used to be when these companies were a fraction of the size. All right, so let's go into something that I've written about that you've talked about and I think a lot of our audience will be familiar with. 
and that is the cable bundle and the fact that it's under assault from so-called cord cutters, but also streaming and everything else. Now, I want to for people who may not be familiar, I'll give a prelude. You and I have been on this for a while, been writing and talking about it, that we thought not only was cord cutting a legitimate threat to all of these business and all these media companies that were relying upon it, but also that it was likely to not continue at a slow rate, that once it started, it was going to accelerate. And I think the companies are blown away by how quickly this acceleration has started in terms of the number of people that are leaving. I saw you tweet the other day uh, about DirecTV that potentially they were going to lose like 16% of their business, you know, in terms of the millions of subscribers that they're now forecasting they will lose. I think they were expecting, you know, maybe 1% or 2% a year, sort of a gla- gradual drip of attrition. And the reality is it's turned into a flood. And so... Am I correct in characterizing that way in your mind? Is that an accurate assessment, part one? And part two, and I think this is the biggest part of it, where is the floor? Like, we're losing a lot. Millions of people are abandoning the cable satellite bundle right now. What is the floor? If you are a major media company right now where you're looking at it and saying, okay, well, we definitely won't go below here, because how do you budget without having a clue where it's going? Huh. Let's unpack that. So let, yeah. let's start from the top. So, you know, from the standpoint of... You know, when you think about the consumer, has it gotten worse? Absolutely. I mean, you know, think about a world, you know, we live in a world where, you know, over the last, call it 30 years, most consumers in the U.S. had very little choice. If they wanted a, a, a package of entertainment programming, they signed up, whether it was DirecTV or back in the day, Time Warner Cable or Comcast, everyone, we all signed up for a package that cost us 80 to $100 a month. We all had the same channels. Yeah, maybe there were slight variations between your package in one city versus another. But but basically, everybody was getting the same channels at the same fat price. And it it didn't matter whether you never watched ESPN or never watched Food Network. You were paying for both of them in your bundle. Let me pause pause you there for a sec, because there might be some people who don't understand that, because it is really kind of interesting. The bundle itself, when we refer to the bundle, let's say you have 100 cable channels, and most people have more satellite channels. Every channel costs something, right? Like, So I think a lot of people look at that $100 bill, and they don't think about the fact that really that $100 bill can be divided by 100 different channels, and you might pay a quarter for a lifetime, and the most expensive channel by far is ESPN. So from a sports perspective, ESPN would cost now 7 or $8 a month on average of that $100 cable bill, and that is orders of magnitude higher than what any other channel costs, right? Because I think people understand, let's say HBO, like if you're buying a premium uh, movie channel, they think, oh, I'm making that choice. I'm going to pay $15 a month or whatever it is for HBO. But they don't think about it in terms of dissecting the other bill. But effectively, that's the business model, right? So I didn't want to cut you off, but I think there are some people who will be listening and they won't understand that. And I think that's the, the issue is that, you know, each of these channels had a lot of cost to it. That's why the bill was so expensive. But the reality is it was also inflexible. And I, I think, you know, and the hit, more you live in a world. People where, did it. It wasn't a la carte. It wasn't like you could say, oh, I want this channel. I don't want that one. You didn't even know what you were paying for. Whereas presumably none of your listeners are paying for YouTube, are paying for Netflix and don't want it. None and, of them and they know exactly what it costs. Correct. 
but they also know if they want to cancel tomorrow, they can. Yes. Uh, and if they want to add in CBS All Access or they want to add in, you know, pick your channel or pick your service, they can come on and off these services very easily with a click of a button, no waiting on hold for two hours, no one, no returning equipment and disconnecting boxes from your home. It has become super easy. And I think, you know, the reality is not just has it gotten easier um, with all these new services that are out there, but also all of the content that is really exciting, and I'm going to leave sports aside. I know you want to talk sports, but let's leave sports aside for a second. Yeah, the yeah. most ambitious, exciting content on TV is not on TV, right? Whether it's HBO or Netflix or you know Amazon Prime, soon to be Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus, all the really exciting, really expensive, ambitious TV projects are all coming to these streaming services that you don't need a bundle for. And so what's ultimately going to happen, and this is the answer to your larger question of like, where's the b- bottom? And I'm going to flip it around on you a little bit because I don't really know the answer. The question is, or the, the, the issue is, I think the bottom is going to be how many people, how many households in America have a diehard sports fan? Because if yeah. you have a diehard sports fan, you're going to want the bundle because there is no way all of the sports, whether it's what's on broadcast TV, what's on ESPN and FS1, what's on your regional sports networks like Fox Sports, you know, pick your, you pick your, your region, getting all of that away from a big bundle is going to be hard. The question, though, is right now there's roughly 90 million homes that take some form of cable bundle. It may be a YouTube TV versus a Comcast, but roughly 90 million households are taking some form of bundle. There are not 90 million households with a diehard sports fan. I don't know if that is 60 million homes, 40 million homes. It's certainly not 90. And I think the question for your listeners is, how big is that base of diehard sports fans? And I think that's, that's really what's going to dictate where the bottom is. And obviously, we're now declining subscribers to bundles of channels the way we historically have grown up with them. The rate of decline was 3% year over year last quarter. It'll probably end the year closer to 4 to 5%, if not greater. So there's a clear acceleration. I mean, just five years ago, subscribers were growing for the industry. So we've gone from growth to now we're at three, four, five percent declines year over year, clearly accelerating. And there's lots of new services that all of your listeners are going to have offered to them over the coming year at really, you know, sometimes even free. I mean, if you buy a new iPhone, you're getting Apple TV plus for free. Disney's pricing really low on their new service. So I think the trends are going to get worse, but the bottom is going to be dictated by sports fans. And and I just don't know how many households have a diehard sports fan. And it's even harder when I find a lot of sports fans in in 2019 are especially younger sports fans uh, live in a highlights only world. Like they're happy to watch highlights on YouTube or on Facebook or on Twitter or Instagram or, you know, house of highlights on Instagram. Like, you look at that world where watching the live event is less important than having the conversation around the highlights of that. And, and it just makes you wonder, what is that number of households that have to have everything live? I mean, there's not millions of people every day watching ESPN. They do huge viewership during Monday Night Football. But on a regular random night, they don't have huge viewership. And so the question is, how many people have to have all of these channels? And my gut is it's smaller than you think. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're talking to Rich Greenfield. Uh, I encourage you to follow him on Twitter at Rich Lightshed. He's a partner at Lightshed. Before that, it was at BTIG Goldman Sachs. All right, you just said a lot of things that I think are are really worth diving into there, so I want to go into it. So first, I want everybody out there listening to think about this. I have heard a lot of sports fans over the years say, oh, I want a la carte. Oh, I would love to not have to, uh, to, to subscribe to a cable or satellite package. And my argument has been what you just put forward. The bundle is actually a great deal for the average sports fan historically because sports cost a lot and was subsidized by many people who never watched it. In other words, I you know like kind of use this phrase, your aunt Gladys, hundred percent, right? They, they don't watch, right? Like so, if you have an aunt and uncle who don't care about sports at all, they're paying the same amount for ESPN and FS1 and and all the regional sports channels that you or I would, and we consume it maniacally, right? And what they watch doesn't cost anywhere near as much. Like, my wife sits around and watches Bravo all day, right? Which is great. I mean, that's kind of their target market is, you know, moms and, you know, like affluent housewives, honestly. Uh, that's a huge part of their their overall uh, overall marketplace, and that's great. But the Bravo would cost 
cost a fraction of what the channels I watch, which are ESPN and sports-related channels, right? FS1, the channel that I'm on. And so we are getting subsidized, we meaning the sports fans, by everybody else out there who never watches live sports on cable or satellite. The That subsidization model has worked in your favor, sports fans' favor, for a long time. It's interesting because if you go to a country like the U.K., a lot of Europe, but certainly if you look at the U.K., where Sky Sports is a la carte. So if you're a soccer fan, you don't just, not everybody pays for Sky Sports. You have to physically decide that you want to pay for it on an a la carte basis. This country, the model just developed from the very early days. If you look at what ESPN built, where everybody was paying, and that model, unfortunately, um, is great for the sports fan, is not great for everybody else. And as it unwinds, I think this is what has... You know, this this certainly has every every one of the leagues is certainly concerned also, right? Because like, and the players, reason you can pay because so their for, salaries, yes, sure. are all predicated on sure. getting paid by people who never consume their content. I mean, think about you know, if you think about you know, Major League Baseball, um, you know, football may always find somebody just because there's such a limited number of games and the ratings are still off the charts for, for football. But the other leagues, I think, are certainly worried about the changing ecosystem, and they're all trying to figure out how we get digital bidders to come in because you need deep pockets You know, as the, the legacy buyers of this content start to shrink, which is what we're sort of talking about in terms of subscribers leaving the ecosystem. Everyone's trying to figure out where are the digital buyers? Like, are we going to see the, the, the Google YouTubes, the Facebooks, uh, our Twitters, the Amazons? Are they going to step up and, and pay the big dollars or not? I mean, so far they've spent little amounts of money and dabbled, but they certainly haven't made a bold move to enter sports rights the way the legacy players are. And I think that's scary to all of the leagues and should be scary to all the players as well. All right, so I want to go back into this, too. You talked about the rise of, we talked a little bit about it, uh, you know, like the YouTube televisions of the world, the sling televisions, all those things. Basically, there are a lot of people who cut the cord and may go in and then subscribe to a bundle that exists through a streaming service. Here is a challenge, I think, that is going to become more and more apparent to the world of sports that they really haven't thought that much about. It is, you talked about the ease with which you can decide to cut a Netflix subscription. Let's say you are a huge Stranger Things fan, right? Like, it's wildly popular. Everybody's watching it. You know that season three is going to debut. When did it debut? Like, July 4th this year. We, and you watched yep. it like the eight-hour show or whatever it is really quickly. You can subscribe for one month, catch up on everything you would want to see on Netflix, theoretically, and leave and not come back for three or four months and catch back up then, right? The same thing can be true for sports. You mentioned the NFL. Let's say that I'm out there and I'm a huge NFL and a college football fan, which there obviously is massive numbers of people out there. But that's a very seasonal sport. So let's say that I only want to watch those sports during uh, football season. So I'm going to subscribe to them from September to January. I can do five months of subscription never miss any games, leave for seven months, not pay for anything, come back and still be able to watch the NFL every year, right? So I think the the, the degree to which the so streaming just, services will be bought in monthly say, increments is, is underrated here. But here's the real problem with this, Clay, and this is why it gets so challenging. So not only were people who weren't sports fans helping subsidize sports, because if you think about it, let's just say ESPN is $8 yeah. and roughly – 
you know, you've got over 80 million people have access to ESPN today. So they're paying over $8 a month for 12 months of the year. Yep. If you only went to the people that wanted to have ESPN, you know, literally would pay for it, my guess is instead of 80 million, households that really want ESPN drops to 30 million or less. And let me let me explain why I think roughly. that's a good I think that's a good number roughly is you look for instance at the most popular programming that ESPN has and that would be Monday night football and that would be the NBA uh, either the Eastern or the Western Conference finals every year and they are not rating much more than 13 million 12 million 10 million people watching that on any given night. So even if you double the most popular thing that they have that would still be a tiny fraction of the overall people that have access, right? So in other words, if you have 80 million households that have access to ESPN on any given Monday night football game, and I'm just roughly approximating here, let's say 12 or 13 million people are watching on average, which I think is about right. That would mean that in your number, over half of the people still would not at 30 million, but certainly in 80 million, it's, you know, whatever it is, you know, 12 out of 80 or 13 out of 80. It's a small percentage of people who have access that watch now. So even if you made them charge, like, I think 30 million is a good number. And then you have to, what you're going to get to okay, is but, but what you have to pay problem. gets much, so but much more. Problem. Yeah. Right. So instead of paying $8, you got to pay 24 mm-hmm. per month. Then the question is. Per month, but then the question is: If you're only a fan of one season of sport, then you only sign up, as you just said, for five months of the year. So instead of spending, the math we did is twenty-four dollars a month for the entire year. If you have a whole bunch of people who are only seasonal sports fans, instead of twenty-four dollars, it might be forty dollars. So because you have even fewer people that are willing to subscribe for the full year, so you 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 kind of get into this vicious cycle yes. where the price monthly price has to keep going up to compensate for the less number of subscribers and, and nightly viewers. And it, you, you quickly see that it is a really difficult model for sports to live in an a la carte world. And, you know, we haven't even talked about what the advertising, what would happen to advertising as, as the viewership reach shrank relative to other places. And so, I, you know, I think these are the real challenges that, that the legacy ecosystem faces. And in many ways, it, it's why you're seeing the consolidation. You know, we're seeing a lot of transactions in the media space over the last few years. Time Warner selling out to AT&T, Discovery and Scripps merging, CBS and Viacom just started the process of remerging. Disney bought, you know, your a lot of the assets from your former parent company in Fox. Like all of this consolidation is playing out because this ecosystem of broadcast and cable television is really under attack, and, and really the future is all of these streaming services. And I think your 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 listeners they already know it, right? Like yeah. they've already like they're spending their time watching whatever they want. You know, it's funny. I I, I sent out a tweet um, or you know about the Emmys being down. Viewership for the Emmys was down like thirty percent year over year on Sunday night, and and I sent out something that said everyone was probably too busy binging, and. You know, someone replied to me and said, oh, yeah, I watched two episodes of Ozarks, one episode of Succession, one episode of of Ballers, (laughs) and I watched the movie Between Two Ferns during the Emmys telecast. Yeah. 
And I was thinking, like, that's what people are doing, right? Like, they're assembling their own entertainment from all of these different services, and they'll sign up, and they'll try something, and they'll cancel this, and they're managing their entertainment life much like they manage the apps on their cell phone, meaning they just go on and off of whatever they want to use, and, and they're in control versus these big gatekeepers of bundlers of channels being in control the way Rich, they have been in the past. Rich, the way I think about it, and you're, I'm 40, you, I think, are around the same age. You're in your 40s as well. But- I'm a little older. I'm a little right. older, but not much. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. All right, so when you were a kid or I was a kid, if I missed my favorite show on television, I was screwed, right? Like, I was like, oh, my God, I missed G.I. Joe today. Like, my life is over, right? Like, when I would get home from school, I'd watch G.I. Joe when I was a little kid. And if I missed it, it was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was on. I wouldn't get to see it for that day unless you know, my mom didn't know how to work the VCR. I don't think my dad and mom still know how to work the VCR. So I wouldn't see it, right? Now, my kids today, and I've told this story before, but my kids today expect that every program that has ever existed in the history of the world, they should be able to watch it whenever they want, right? So, like, I have a five year just turned five. We watch Spider-Man in my house, like, probably four times a day, right? Like, he wants to watch a different Spider-Man all day long, every day. And it's funny, when we watch sports now, and I'm curious how this is going to eventually have to evolve, they're like, oh, it's so boring, these commercials. And I tell a funny story. Like, we were out in L.A. when I was working at Fox a few years ago, and I had my two oldest with me, and they were in the hotel room, and I was working out in the other room, and they were on the bed watching television. And they're like, Dad, Dad, get in here. What is this? And I was like, oh, no, you know, they get on the adult film somehow. Like, what in the world has, you know, they, have they hit on the remote or whatever else? It was a commercial, Rich. They had never, at the time before, when we had gone to the hotel, they had never watched a show on commercial because everything they watched was on demand. And they were like, why am I not getting to watch my show? Why did they stop it, right? Like, now, this is when they were young. Probably like my two oldest are like six and four years old. But everything they had watched up to that point was on demand and there were no commercials. And so like this, this, this ecosystem that they are growing up in is they expect for everything to be immediately available to them that's ever existed, and they expect to watch it commercial-free. And I don't know that the media has caught up to how this world is going to exist, right? Like, if you just think about it. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. 
and I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, this is Wins and Losses. I'm Clay Travis. We're talking with Rich Greenfield. I know you've got kids. You probably watch the way they consume media, and it's so seismically different than the way we did, and a lot of the executives are our age or much older, and I think they're still trying to struggle to figure out what their market's doing. Well, I mean, it's also what they watch is a broader definition, right? I mean, watching can be playing on TikTok, snapping people on Snapchat, watching Instagram videos, YouTube videos, watching Ninja play video games or yeah. play Fortnite. I mean, the, 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 the competition for time is at a whole new level. It used to be, you know, you and I going to grade school, right? You came home and either you went out and played with your friends, played a board game, or you turned on the TV and watched whatever happened to be on at that exact moment in time. You didn't have a whole lot of choices. Now, as you said, not just every TV show ever created is essentially available somewhere, uh, commercial-free in many cases, but you have a choice of activities that is sort of endless. You know, the cures for boredom are, are an endless array of things that are, you know, and that list is growing by the day in terms of what you can do. And I think in, in that light, it sort of makes sense that linear TV is losing. Not to mention, you know, you have to actually be there at the exact moment to watch linearly live. You have to deal with commercials. Uh, it's just not a great experience. In some cases, I think more and more consumers are just waiting for shows to finish their season so they can just binge them all, at, you know, over yeah. the course of X number of days yeah. rather than even dealing with the week to week. Oh, I think there's people who take so, vacations now and they're like, what are you doing on your vacation? They're like, oh, I'm going to watch the newest season of Ozark. <laughs> you know, like I'm taking Friday right. off and I'm just going to chill. I guarantee you there's a huge, if we could somehow get the data, uh, if it hadn't been on July 4th, like I guarantee you during the summer, there were people who just took off Monday or Friday and just decided to sit at home, pop popcorn and watch Stranger Things all day, right? Like that's a really enjoyable way to spend time with your friends, your family, or even by yourself. Now, uh, there's so many things we can talk about, but I want to kind of circle it back around here on, you said something interesting just then, talking about live event. And we talk, you talked about the, uh, the Emmys and how they hit a ratings low and everything else. But there is a theory out there that I think I subscribe to, and I bet that you do as well based on what I've read. And the first person that I saw basically put it out publicly was Reed Hastings, at least in this universe of, of media companies. 
And he said, basically, the only reason for television to exist in the future will be news and sports. Like, that's pretty much it, because it's live, and the minute something happens from a news perspective, if there's a hurricane, then everybody's going to put on the Weather Channel because they're going to want to know what's going to happen with the hurricane. Or Donald Trump does something, or something happens in the 2020 election with whoever he's running against, and everybody's going to rush to their television to watch the debate or watch all of the coverage surrounding that. God forbid we ever have another 9-11. Like, live news is tough to beat, right? Same thing is true of sports. Like, you will sit down, they own your attention because you can't see it anywhere else. Do you buy into that? That basically all that live television, all that television, like, that we've grown up getting used to really needs to exist for is live event, meaning news and sports. Yeah, although I'd say that even when you look at something like news, I think there's an increasing number of people that are getting news on other platforms, right? So yeah. when you look at when you look at Twitter, for instance, which you know I think you and I are both addicted to, yes. that's an incredible platform for news. It's like so having an AP Newswire. At- the way I compare it is like it, back in the day, you know, if you get worked at the newspaper, you got to go in and you like see the news breaking on the AP Newswire, and you'd have it. That's what everybody basically has with Twitter if you use it in that form and fashion. Yeah, I mean, and if you pull up the Explore tab on Twitter, there's always some live something that's happening right then and there that's coming out. And so, you know, the reality is, yes, I think news will be important, but I I do think that the kind of the the just watch cable news in the evening, the Fox News, the CNN, I mean, that's an old viewer, right? Like there's not a lot of what I would call younger viewers, and I'd put younger in the category of under the age of 50 in this sense. Yeah. There's not a lot of under 50s that are tuning into cable news every evening uh, to watch, let alone local broadcast news. And so uh, I think news will, will matter, but less. I think sports is the one where the, the challenge with sports is no one has shown an economic model that works outside of the traditional TV ecosystem for big, expensive sports. I mean, you've got certain things like UFC has gone to ESPN+, Plus, which is obviously a subscription over-the-top service. But we haven't seen much in the way of major sports rights end up anywhere outside of the legacy ecosystem. Yeah, you can watch Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime, that one game a week you can watch there. But there just isn't a lot of ability to watch the best of, of, of local sports. You can get an antenna and get, you know, your local, you know, games at whatever's on AB, sorry, on, on CBS or Fox. But if you want to watch all the stuff that's on ESPN or on your regional sports network, all of that stuff, or FS1, all of that stuff, you need a cable bundle. And I think it's going to take time for that really to break. I mean, we keep looking for signs. I think there was a lot of people hopeful that Sunday Ticket might move off of AT&T's DirecTV, and that seems increasingly unlikely to happen anytime in the next few years. And so we keep hoping for new entrants, and it just hasn't happened yet. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking to Rich Greenfield. Uh, You should follow him on Twitter at Rich Lightshed, I believe, is your uh, new Twitter handle. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Uh, I'll obviously be tweeting tweeting this out uh, when uh, when this uh, podcast goes up, and uh, you can certainly go follow him. I'd encourage you to awesome stuff that he puts out on a regular basis. Let's go uh, into this ESPN Plus, which I think is a big part of the Disney uh, overall model. Well, let me start here. Uh, you could probably explain it better than I can, but succinctly, Disney is about to become an aggressive streaming player. They have Hulu now, which they have majority control over. They have Disney Plus, and Hulu, basically, in my understanding, is going to be kind of their adolescent, you know, like if you're PG-13, for lack of a better way to, to place it. Then they'll have Disney Plus, which is like their kids' offering uh, that I think almost everybody will have, and ESPN Plus, which is their sports offering, and they will bundle all three of those together, but all three of those are distinct streaming entities. Have I got that correct in terms of the way that that, that platform is out there? You nailed it. And I, and I think, you know, look, Bob Iger's declared, Disney's chairman and CEO has declared that streaming is the company's number one priority. He put Kevin Mayer in charge of all things streaming. And so, you know, Kevin and his team are hard at work on launching Disney Plus, um, which is going to come out November 11th. Hulu's obviously got roughly 30 million subscribers. ESPN Plus is a niche service. It's got 2.3, 2.4 million subscribers. I think ESPN Plus, in many ways, is still trying to figure out what it wants to be. I mean, I think in many ways it may be more of a a long-term life raft for ESPN, the, the cable channel, as, as the bundle breaks down, versus, you know, things like Disney Plus and Hulu are clearly core business initiatives of the Walt Disney Company. I think ESPN is still trying to figure out which rights to move over, how fast to move over rights, 
how you know there's a lot of confusion between ESPN and ESPN Plus. And if you looked at the U.S. Open recently, people who were subscribing to the U, to, to ESPN Plus thought they could watch the Serena match, but of course the Serena match was part of what was on the cable network ESPN, not ESPN yes. Plus, the over-the-top service. And so. These naming conventions, everyone wants to use their legacy brands. It's really confusing to your listeners, really confusing. Yeah, it is so fascinating. Okay, and and I want to break those three down because, to me, I like to try to just think about things from a basic business model perspective. Like, what is your business model? And the the business model, to me, that makes sense for Disney Plus and Hulu is different than ESPN. And let me make an argument here, and you tell me whether or not you buy in. Disney is with Marvel and with uh, the Marvel, which they bought for people who don't know, and they own all the Star Wars, they bought the LucasArts, and they also went out and they bought Pixar. That's about owning content forever and being able to distribute it forever. An easy way to think about it is my grandkids, hopefully that I have some, will one day watch Toy Story, right? And they may well watch Lost, the television show, right? Disney owns that forever, They will also probably grow up and watch sporting events, but ESPN just rents those sporting events. So I don't know who will be distributing, let's say, like, I'm a big Southeastern Conference football fan, right? I don't know who will be distributing SEC uh, football games in 2050. I would like to be alive and be watching them, but I have no idea who will distribute them because that conference is not owned. So ESPN is effectively in the middleman business. It rents somebody else's assets and tries to make money off taking them to the public. They're a distribution play as opposed to an ownership play. And it seems to me like when you look at Disney Plus and you look at Hulu, what they're about is owning content. So there's kind of a disconnect there. Does that make sense to you? The business models are different on their most fundamental level between what Disney is doing with Pixar, with Marvel, and with, uh, with uh, Star Wars, for instance, than what they're doing with trying to put on the NFL or the UFC or anything else that they have the rights to. I mean, look, sports networks are essentially renting their content. Yes. They don't own the content. Um, you know, even something like UFC is only on ESPN Plus for the next six years. It's not on forever. Yes. Um, WWE just shifted some of their content from NBC over to Fox, right? I mean, the reality is you don't control these things because the leagues and the team owners own these assets, not the cable or broadcast networks. And so the business is fundamentally very different. And I think, look, I, I think that's part of the reason why, if you look at a company like Apple, you know, or even look at Netflix. Why have these massive companies not entered sports? And I think, Clay, you nailed it. I mean, totally nailed it. The reason is, is because if you create the morning show for Apple TV+, Plus, you own it. You don't Forever. own it. it well, and not just in the U.S., literally everywhere in the world. So every Apple, there, there's 900 million Apple devices, iPhones, all over the world that have been sold, right? The installed base. Every one of them can watch the morning show the minute it comes out, and Apple can run global ad campaign, and everybody can watch that show. If Apple bought Monday Night Football, only the people in the U.S. could watch it because they don't have the global rights. That is, I think, roughly 17% of Apple devices, iPhones, have been you know, are in the U.S. They're really a, a global company. And so if you think about Netflix, the same thing. You can spend billions of dollars on sports rights. I don't care whether we're talking MLB or we're talking NFL, but you could spend billions of dollars on sports rights. 
that works in one market only on certain devices because a lot of them, what you can do on a smart TV versus on a phone versus a tablet versus a laptop are often very different. So you, you have device restrictions, geographical, you know, regional differences in terms of what you have access to versus Stranger Things as Netflix is all over the world. So yeah. I think it makes it, that, it makes it really hard to want to be in the regional licensing business for content when you can be in the global ownership of content business. And I think that's really the distinction that you're drawing when you're looking at Disney and Hulu relative to something like ESPN+. And I think it plays into why sports really hasn't moved into that digital arena. It's really hard to justify when you don't have the global reach um, available for that content. Yeah, and it also raises larger questions. Like, do you think that if Bob Iger and Disney had their choice, that they wish they could stream, that, that like siphon ESPN off in its own business now? If you look at ESPN as a, as a standalone entity, the challenge to me that they have is ESPN Plus. You really hit on it. Like, people want to watch Serena Williams match, and they may sign up for ESPN Plus, but ESPN Plus only carries the events that aren't good enough to put on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU, the SEC network. Like, you can already stream ESPN, the app, if you have regular cable and satellite subscriptions, whatever else. But ESPN Plus is just an additive, but it's an additive that doesn't feature the most essential of their products, right? It's not as if you have to have ESPN Plus in order to watch Monday Night Football. Now, that would be an aggressive play if, for instance, when Monday Night Football came up, they said, oh, we're taking it off ESPN and the only way you can watch it is on ESPN+. Plus. Well, a lot of people would probably sign up, but it's a big risk. It takes down the number of eyeballs on that game. The NFL's not happy, all those things. So I don't understand. Well, I'm, not even, I'm not even sure the NFL would allow it. Yeah, right. I mean, I think that's also part of the, the issue, right, is that if you – whatever they want to do with Mandalorian, which is – you know, because you could certainly argue the Mandalorian, which is coming to Disney+, Plus, it's, yes. you know, super expensive, Star Wars. $15 million um, an episode, you know, they're saying, right? Correct. Huge expense. So you look at something like that, it w- would it get more eyeballs on Sunday night on ABC? Of course. Yes. Of course. Like, it's not even a question. But they own the property, they own the content, and Disney can choose what to do with it. And so that's a great example of when you own the IP, you get to build your business Correct. with that however you see fit. With content like Monday Night Football, the NFL is very focused on reach, right? I mean, if you were to get Roger Goodell and talk to him, you know, he would – I think he, he – every time you hear Roger talk publicly, it's always about we want as many people to be exposed to football as possible to keep people engaged with the sport so people are playing the sport. Like, we want to keep football on everybody's mind all the time. It's why all the major rights are still on broadcast TV. To put a major rights package on a platform like ESPN Plus that has 2.4 million viewers would be a disaster you know, for the I NFL. It, like it doesn't sound like that's in the best interest of the NFL. It's certainly you know, not. But Sunday that would ticket, be... Sunday ticket, I could maybe see because that's kind of a very, you know, that has a, a far more focused group of premium viewers as an add-on to ESPN Plus. I I could mentally see why something like Sunday Ticket could make sense. But to put something like Monday Night Football, forget about whether Disney wanted to do it mathematically. The question is, why in the world, if you were sitting at the NFL, why would you want to be on a platform with so little reach? The I only think, reason you know, sports you, is always a, Yeah, sorry to cut you off. The money. only reason is money. Yeah, right? And you would just take right. so much money. But that they don't want the money because it's money in conjunction with the amount of fans that can watch and consume your product. 
But but I'll ask you, Clay. I'd actually be curious of your thoughts on this. So when you think about, let's just say Amazon. Let's just let's just say Amazon came in tomorrow and said, we want Monday Night Football for three billion dollars instead of the yeah. two billion that ESPN is currently paying. Right now, lots of people still turn on, especially older consumers, certainly turn on ESPN and just watch on an evening, and they know that that's where Monday Night Football is. So there's casual viewing. You know, you're, maybe there's less channel flipping today than there's ever been, but there's still people that flip channels and just have the TV on for hours a day. It, putting the, the Monday Night Football on Amazon, you physically would have to go to Amazon Prime to watch and you'd have to have a Roku, yes. turn on Amazon Prime or in a Fire TV and watch Amazon Prime. And I think the fear would be is that you'd lose a lot of – you'd keep all the passionate. You know, the, the, the football crazies, the diehard football fans are going to find the content wherever yeah. they go. For sure, they're going to find the game, for sure. But do you lose the casual viewer as you shift from these linear platforms that people are accustomed to to digital platforms where – most people think of these as, hey, I want to go stream Fleabag or I want to go stream Mrs. Maisel or whatever the show may be. That's why you're turning on Amazon. You're not turning it on to watch the nightly sports event. And having just one sports event, meaning Monday Night Football 17 weeks a year, is very different than having sports content 24-7 where there's always a reason to tune in for sports on Amazon. And I think that's sort of the risk that you run is that, you know, People are not accustomed to consuming sports on these platforms, and so you lose a lot of the casual eyeballs, and you're only going to get the diehards, and that's a big issue. I don't care if you're the NFL or you're MLB or NHL, like NBA. Like it's an issue for all of these leagues and owners as they think about the shift from the traditional kind of channel ecosystem to the over-the-top ecosystem. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and 
and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The question that I was going to get into there is, do you think that Bob Iger and Disney would like to spin ESPN off as its own business? Because the, the, the hit that I was getting there is, they're in a different business than everything that it seems like they're focused yeah. on in streaming. And I understand the argument of, oh no, they're in the sports business, we want to put together a bundle with ESPN Plus and Hulu and also with Disney Plus. But you hit on it, like they don't have the ability to take like the Mandalorian for people out there who don't know it's a new Star Wars show which will cost 15 million dollars an episode and they're going to put it on Disney Plus. In theory, they could decide to make another Star Wars movie and go direct to uh the consumer on Disney Plus and say you have to subscribe to Disney Plus to watch this as opposed to go to the theater. Maybe it won't happen, maybe it will, but there's no comparable ability to do that with anything that ESPN has. You know, I got into a fun Twitter debate with Scott Van Pelt a few years ago, and he made, you know, there was all these questions about ESPN's long-term potential, and he made some comment that, like, you know, okay, so ESPN is only going to make X billion versus Y billion, you know, I think it was like 6 billion versus 7 billion, like, it's still a massive company, and, you know, the growth is certainly really challenged for all the reasons we're talking about on this podcast, but if you're the Walt Disney Company, I mean, this is an asset that throws off a tremendous amount of cash. I mean, it, it may not be a growth business anymore, but it's an incredible cash cow. I mean, there's not a lot of cap, you know, the cost of running ESPN relative to lots of other, you know, think about the theme park and all the capital that you have to do to, to, to build that business. I mean, this is a business that throws off a tremendous amount of cash and certainly helps Disney build other businesses. And so I'd be surprised if they got rid of ESPN. I mean, I think it, it presents real challenges. And I hear you on the fact that they don't own their IP. You know, they've tried to do more. If you look at Connor Shell and his team and what they've done with 30 for 30, it's pretty amazing the content they've created. I, you know, I think, you know, there's an example of they own 30 for 30. They put it on ESPN+. Plus. Now a lot less people watch 30 for 30 than they used to. Correct. But they own the content, so they, so they can do what they can't do with the NFL, is that example. You know, they created the show NFL Primetime, or they're bringing back NFL Primetime. They're putting that on ESPN+. Again, there are things they can do um, with ESPN+, to make it better. But, uh, you know, I think you're hitting on the, 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 the question really, to me, is less about whether you get rid of ESPN but do you stop investing in it? Do you stop going after the NFL rights because it just doesn't make sense in the model anymore? And do you just harvest cash out of ESPN or do you keep doubling down and keep spending to own more sports rights? It seems like ESPN is focused on acquiring more sports rights. That seems to be the messaging from Jimmy Bataro and the ESPN team. But we'll see. There's a lot of rights start becoming available as you move into 2021 through 2025. 
And we'll see how ambitious Disney is when it comes to tackling those rights acquisitions. And or maybe moving some stuff to ABC, right? I mean, there's an argument, I think it's probably a pretty good one, that Monday Night Football could come off of ESPN and move to ABC potentially to take advantage of the fact that theoretically ABC is not bleeding the same number of consumers, uh, subscribers. The other thing I would say uh, on that front is you remember probably back in the day when ESPN made Playmakers, right? It was like the fictional story about the NFL and the NFL got upset so they killed the show. Imagine how much different the thought process would be if, say, ESPN had created Friday Night Lights, if they had created all these shows that have iconic value that then they could put on ESPN+. Plus. Then you've got like, oh, I've got to watch this new episode of this show. It's so good. Even Ballers, which you mentioned earlier, if that were an ESPN production as opposed to an HBO no, hard, production. Hard knocks. Hard, hard knocks, knocks, right? I mean, there's like, lots of, sure. That things that you would have to have as a premium subscriber. All right, let's go um, uh, outside of the, uh, the ESPN+. Plus. Well, let me ask you this on ESPN+. Plus. Will it ever make money? Oh my God! You know, the, look, sports is a very expensive business, as we just talked about. The subscriber base that you need, you know, I think ESPN spent for ESPN Plus. Forget about even the pay-per-views, but they spent 150 million dollars a year to acquire the rights for the UFC, just for the ESPN Plus. There's more rights for ESPN, the cable network, but for ESPN Plus, they spent 150 million dollars. Yes. When you think about that, you know, that's since they only get four four ninety nine for ESPN Plus a month, even if you subscribe for the entire year, they need two and a half million subscribers just to break even on one piece of content, UFC. They don't even have two and a half million subscribers yet, and there's lots of other content and sports rights they've paid for for Plus. So it, it is, you know, Disney has said over the next five years they're going to get this thing to profitability uh, with millions more subscribers. Uh, you know, I think we're skeptical in its current how they've currently positioned it. Do they go out and acquire some far bigger sports rights and start really growing the subscriber number? I think time will tell. But doing sports in an over-the-top model, I, I, I think if there was a clear path to profitability, lots of the tech companies would be jumping in in a big way. And I think the fact that they're not is that nobody really is clear how you make this profitable right now. So does that mean you don't buy into the long-range future of the zone? I, I don't know if you've been to their their offices. I was there, I don't know, probably a couple of weeks ago in New York. Uh, I think I texted with you even maybe then about potentially uh, starting to do the podcast. But uh, I walked around there. They're at One World Trade Center, I think is the name of the, uh, of the building. They have an incredible setup there. And for people who aren't familiar with the zone, they've really kind of gone in on boxing, but they have a daily – wraparound show surrounding Major League Baseball now. They are a digital exclusive, and obviously they've been successful. Big investor uh, Lynn Blavatnik, who's a multi-billionaire, they've been successful in building sports universes in other countries. Do you buy in that there can basically be a Netflix of sports in America, or do you not like that business pitch? Look, you've got John Skipper from ESPN. He certainly knows this business very well. Um, you know, you've got... You've assembled – capital is the biggest constraint, right, in terms of acquiring sports rights. You need lots of money. And, and a, a willingness to, have, to lose a lot of money potentially for a while until you eventually hit profitability. So, I, look, I wouldn't even want to begin to comment on how long it would take the zone to break even or make money because 
I think they're just in the very early stages of, of investing in, in very expensive sports rights and building out their brand. That said, you know, you just saw an announcement, I think it was last Friday, I want to say, Comcast announced that as they launched this broadband-only set-top box that they're giving away to all of their 7, 8 million broad, you know, broadband households. So if any of your listeners have broadband only from Comcast, meaning they don't take a cable package, they can get a free set-top box from Comcast now. And DAZN is one of the, 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 the channels that they're going to get um, on that set-top box. And so the DAZN distribution is certainly improving. I, I still don't think it's a household name you know, for, for many people. I think that's going to be the challenge is how do they make it a household name, and it's going to you know, be by acquiring more high-profile sports rights. There's certainly an opportunity, but I still think you know, the how you actually monetize this and can you get people to pay enough money, again, not just for a month, Clay, but pay for the entire year. The, the, that on-off that you talked about earlier in the podcast – that's what really worries me. Nobody ever called up Comcast to cancel because it was like torture. Like nobody wanted to wait on hold for hours. Even if you got to a representative, they convinced you of why with a discount you should stay for a few more months. Like that process was so painful. Now canceling any of these services, I mean, you can cancel Netflix in faster than I can say cancel Netflix. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating Cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. 
old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's amazing. All right, the big battle. I, 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 some people probably who are listening to us right now. I'm Clay Travis. He's Rich Greenfield, uh, and uh, a lot of people I bet who are listening to us right now may have heard you on the Business Wars podcast discussing Netflix versus Blockbuster. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I believe it was Business Wars, right? Uh, yep, I yep. listened to that on a long drive. It's fantastic. The new Business War that is out there is going to be. Netflix against Disney Plus against Warner Media, whatever they're launching, Apple, whatever they are launching. How does this all shake out? What do you see on the horizon as these major media leviathans sort of square off against each other? You know, the reality is the consumer is really being empowered. You know, we were talking about the bundle at the beginning where you really had no choice. Now you've got all of these amazing companies coming out with content, each of them trying in many ways to underprice each other. And many of them are doing it because it's very early. Like, I don't think the long-term price of Disney Plus is five ninety nine. My gut is Apple TV Plus long-term is not free for, you know, every Apple device buyer. But I think as you think about the long-term, um, this is so great for the consumer because you're getting lots of content. You have choice for the first time in your life. You have choice of what you pay for, how much you pay for it, how long you subscribe for. And you're getting an incredible array of content, and you don't have to be home to watch a show at a given moment in time. You watch it on your own schedule, whether it's at home. If you want to hit pause and pick it up tomorrow, it remembers where you left off. Like, technology is really the friend of the consumer. Like Every consumer should, is going to benefit from what's happening across all of these companies. And I think you know, the real question is, is uh, I worry less about Netflix versus Disney or Netflix versus Amazon or Netflix versus Apple TV+. Plus. I worry more, as you look at all of these services, how many of those 90 million homes still need the big bundle? How many of your listeners are going to cut the cord this year? My guess is the, the faster all of this happens, meaning the more services they have offered at low pricing with all of these features, the faster they say, you know what? I don't need this this bundle from Charter or from DirecTV anymore, and they're just saying goodbye. And that's the real – I worry far more about that change than I worry about all of these services being successful in and of themselves. Of course, Disney's going to be successful. Of course, Apple's going to be successful. Like, people are going to love all of these new services. It's the legacy bundle that's going to be really threatened. When do we reach, and this is a big question, but Reed Hastings, again at Netflix, has said that he doesn't really ever see himself back in the day completing, competing with HBO. He thought he was competing with sleep. For a long time, media consumption has grown because people have found more times. Like You can put every show on your phone, so if I'm riding a bus, I can sit and watch a show. Right? I can listen to a podcast, as many people would be doing, as they go about things that are doing they're doing throughout their day. But at some point as humans, we reach peak media consumption and we can't consume any more unless technologically suddenly we only need three hours of sleep or something like that, right? Maybe that's going to come down the line and it'll free up more time in our day. 
But do you think we've officially reached basically peak media consumption where the phone allowed the pie to grow, right? Because the phone went with us. It allowed us to consume more in many different ways. Is there that next technological leap? If so, where would it come from? Or have we theoretically reached the point where everyone is competing basically with sleep? We can't create more time because everybody, even if you're like a superhuman, needs to sleep five, six, seven hours a night at least. That's a it's a big question, right? But but it is at some it point is. you can't really, grow yeah. the pie anymore. Like if I want people to listen to this podcast, I have to convince them that this podcast is better than something else by and large because I feel like now everybody is competing all the time with everybody. And maybe a big hit of that yeah, but, has but, been le- legacy. But it's it's a fascinating but, question. But here I am. But, but I'm but I'm sitting in an office in Manhattan. I'm staring out down at the street, and I see people walking. Before, yeah, maybe they could pick it up and make a phone call, but now they can stick their AirPods in while they're literally typing on their phone, and they can listen to Clay Travis's podcast. Like, the ability to fill white space in your day with media exposure is growing. And so, you know, I don't know where that peaks out. I mean, I think it's certainly growing. I think we're, you know, while you're watching less linear TV, you're watching more video every day than ever before. And so um, I think there's still growth potential, you know, in those overall numbers. I mean, you know, the reality is that the challenge is that you're, you're fighting not just video consumption time, you're fighting whether it's, you know, making TikToks, whether it's snapping friends, whether it's watching people play video games or playing video games, the competition for your time has never been more intense. But I think overall time spent with media is going to keep growing because the experience that you're getting on these devices is better and better, and you can do more. I mean, every version of the iPhone allows you to do more than the last one, faster, longer battery life. I mean, you know, more of these services are letting you download. I mean, you, you know, how many years ago did you get on a plane and you were stuck watching whatever was on the back of the plane screening on the TVs, if there even was a TV, or they were giving you a DVD player to watch, if anything? Now, literally, you can download, you know, an entire season of Fauda or Ozarks and watch it on a plane. And everything on Disney Plus is going to be offline downloadable. Spotify lets you download everything, and so you can listen to it when you don't have access to the Internet. And so I think the the experience of, of how much time you can spend with media is going to keep growing. Obviously, there is a limit when you think about sleep, but I still think there's a lot of room to go as these services create and, and create not just more content, but also figure out what you want to watch. I mean, I think the, the greatest problem in the podcast space right now is knowing what great podcasts are out there. I mean, right yeah. now it's more word of mouth than anything else. Finding content to, to watch or listen to is still the number one challenge that everyone's trying to solve. Would you a couple of questions for you? Because I know you're busy. I want to finish with these. Would you yeah. buy a, a a pro sports franchise in one of the traditional linear leagues right now? NFL, NBA, uh, NHL, or Major League Baseball? Or do you think the massive skyrocketing valuation we have seen in those franchises over, let's say, the last 25 years has basically plateaued? Do you think those are good places? Let's pretend that you were a billionaire. Are those good places to stash your money? With NFL rights likely to double from current levels because they're more important than ever before, I think owning an NFL team, there's probably no better decision you could make uh, than owning an NFL team heading into the next round of negotiations with um, broadcasters and cable networks. 
you know, when you get into, you know, things like baseball, um, you know, I think you have to be, uh, you know, much more price conscious as you're thinking about it because there's real headwinds. You know, the, the regional sports network model is under attack. I mean, Charlie Ergen Dish Network hasn't had the former Fox RSNs haven't been on the air in, I think, 60 days now. So the pressure on these regional sports networks is growing. I think it's part of the reason why Rupert Murdoch was was happy to get rid of them um, when he sold a lot of his company to Disney. And so, you know, I think sports like baseball, I'm a lot less certain about kind of anybody can make money. I think on the football side, there's still, you know, I think football is in a very good position, but they've also got the most, you know, forget about ratings being up a little bit so far this season versus down a little bit. The reality is the ratings are still enormous. There's still only 17 weeks of a season. I mean, this is still an enormous product that has tremendous value that someone's going to keep paying for. Um, I think the other sports that have a lot more content where, you know, viewership is far more challenged and where the economic model, meaning the regional sports network model is challenged. That's where I think it starts to get much trickier in terms of saying, close your eyes and you would just buy any team. That's, that's a lot harder decision. Do you think long range, the Rupert Murdoch decision to sell his assets to Disney will be a good or bad one? There is no given the disruption moving from a model where everybody pays for everything, whether they watch it or not, to a model you pay for what you want to consume, that is going to be so disruptive and so painful for the whole industry. People like Rupert Murdoch uh, for Fox, Jeff Bukas, Time Warner, um, Ken Lowe scripts, I think those are going to be the people that you look at and say they were the smartest people in the room. They knew when to exit. They knew when, you know, essentially maybe they were a little past peak, but, you know, close enough where getting out and knowing when to sell is one of the most important skills in business. And I think they did an incredible job. All right. Of the major media companies that are out there right now, you just mentioned AT&T, which is bought Warner Media. We've talked Netflix. We've talked Disney. We've talked uh, uh, Apple. Who would you buy stock in right now? Like, who do you think has the best future? And I'll just give you a prelim. I own stock for people out there in Amazon. I own stock in Netflix. I own stock some in Fox. Uh, and I own a lot of sports gambling companies that I bought recently. Well, I- I'm going to... I'm going to be brutally honest. We, we at Lightshed, we're, we're two weeks post-launch. We haven't put ratings on any companies yet. So you'll have to stay tuned on specific ratings. I'd say, though, thematically, when you look at the world of digital and you look at what's going on with companies like Twitter uh, in an election year, Snapchat starting to grow again and you know really accelerate. When you look at, you know, everyone was so worried about Facebook from a regulatory standpoint and you know try to find someone who has changed their Instagram usage if anything, it's growing, but no one stopped using Instagram because of all the regulatory attacks on Facebook. And so I think the digital world offers far more attractive growth potential than the legacy media world. I think, you know, this transition is going to be very messy. And even if you believe Disney's best positioned because of their great content, everything we just talked about over the last hour, this is hard stuff. And a place where none of these companies has expertise, meaning technology, direct-to-consumer marketing, all of this is new for all of these companies. And I think it's going to be a really tough next few years for all of these companies that try to make this pivot. When I used to do uh, legal proceedings, I would always end a deposition or a question with somebody that I really thought was smarter than me about things by saying, 
what was I not smart enough to ask you that you wish that I had? Is there anything that you would like to say to our audience or discuss to finish up here that I wasn't smart enough to direct you to be able to talk about? Look, you have a massive audience, Clay, that's highly engaged I, I, from talking to you on, on past shows. I'm really curious what your audience thinks. Like, how do they think about, you know, are they cutting the cord? Have they cut the cord? Are they going to cut the cord? You know, are, are they, do they like the fact that they have to subscribe to all of these services? You know, is it easier to stay in a bundle? Uh, the other question I'm really fascinated about and is a major topic should shows come out week to week like Game of Thrones did or This Is Us or does your audience prefer it coming out all at once like it does on Netflix or Amazon? There's a huge debate in media circles. Disney with Disney Plus is going to roll out shows week to week. Uh, I think consumers don't really like that and they like being in full control of when they watch. But I'd be curious what your audience thinks to these questions. I'll put up a poll there for you as soon as we finish the show. I'll tag you in it as well and I'll let people respond on social media. Here's one that I do think you'll be interested in. I don't know if you saw this, but I put it up yesterday. How do you watch sports on cable slash satellite, right? So how do you watch ESPN, FS1, TNT, however you're watching cable satellite? 53%, I got 33,000 votes, so that's a pretty good size audience. 53% of people said they still watch from a traditional cable or satellite subscription. 30% said they were online streaming subscribers. 8% said they watch illegal pirated streams online. 9% said they use parents' and friends' passwords in order to log in. I thought that was pretty fascinating data. Again, not sure how 100% accurate it is for the country, but that was what my audience said. Look, you've got a really engaged sports audience, so I think what they say is interesting to me for sure. I appreciate the time. I know how busy you are. I love doing these conversations. I always learn a lot. And uh, I would, again, encourage everybody to go follow Rich Greenfield. Answer some of his questions. I'll tag him. You can uh, you can go tell him what you think. He is a fascinating follow, a smart man to read and uh, pay attention to. I appreciate the time, my man. You're awesome, Clay. Thanks so much for having me. Let's do it again. For sure. That's Rich Greenfield. He is now at Lightshed Partners at Rich Lightshed. He's outstanding. I am Clay Travis. You can follow me at Clay Travis. You enjoyed this conversation. Subscribe to the podcast, Wins and Losses Weekly. It's out there trying to make you smarter, entertain you, and have long-form conversations you can't find elsewhere. That's what we do here on the Wins and Losses podcast. Again, I'm Clay Travis. Go rate us. Give us five stars. Appreciate all of you. This has been Wins and Losses. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.